Bob Erlinson is a retired reporter and foreign correspondent for the Baltimore Sun. You will soon find out why Bob has quickly become someone I truly respect and admire. So first, I think we should start out by welcoming Bob. Thank you definitely for talking to Gemma and I. Gemma, why don't you go ahead and introduce Bob and talk about how you guys first came into contact. Okay. I want all your listeners to meet my dear new friend, Bob Rollinson. And I actually, I don't think we've ever met face-to-face. We've talked on the phone and no, written back. No, shared an eye doctor. We do. We share an eye doctor and we love him. But anyway, so Bob is a former reporter with the Baltimore Sun. And he covered the Doe Row case in the 90s. And Bob, you covered some of the Sister Cassie murder when it happened, didn't you? No, I um, explained that. As a okay, matter of fact, go ahead. I got involved in this in 1993. When my partner, the late Joe Narofsky, and I learned that there was a woman talking to lawyers about a priest at Archbishop Keogh High School who had been sexually abusing girls and that a nun had been murdered. We looked in the file and then found there was very heavy coverage in November 1969 when Sister Catherine vanished. However, when her body was found in January, of 1970, the Sun and the News American were on strike, so there was no local coverage. And I was in Brazil during that whole time, so I knew nothing about any of it. It was all new to me. Joe and I approached Phil Dantes, Beverly Wallace, and Jim Maggio, the lawyers for Gene Weiner, then known as Jane Doe, and we started working from there. Joe and I just tried to find as many people we, we could who might have information. Now, remember, this was 23 years after the fact. Right. Joe was the son of a Baltimore policeman. He had good sources in the Baltimore department from his days at the News American, and he started working then. We got a lot of conflicting information about the interaction or interference by the Archdiocese of Baltimore in the initial city police investigation. So we were trying to sort all that out. Then it was a Baltimore City abduction that became a Baltimore County homicide. So we began pressing the county police and finally got them to reopen the investigation. You asked, who did we talk to? We talked to everybody we could. Teresa, Jean, Sister Russell, Sherry Coop, Jim Scannell, Bud Romer, Joe Maskell, Dr. Franz, Dr. Conrad Richter, the gynecologist. The Archdiocese, of course, claimed to be helpful, but that was a joke. We met with Rick Burns, the Archdiocesan top lawyer, but all we got was double talk and why they couldn't tell us anything and how they were would cooperate with authorities, blah, blah, blah. I asked for a background interview with Bishop Ricard, which was refused. So the Baltimore County detectives, two homicide detectives, were assigned to it as a cold case, and they worked very hard on it, but they were not very helpful with us either. And in one point involving Jerry Koo, who had been Sister Catherine's boyfriend, the jet former 
now a former Jesuit priest, they right. were all to us. And I spent one whole evening with then County Police Chief Mike Gamble trying to get access to the case file, but he refused because it's an active case. It's a 23-year-old active case. Joe went to Pittsburgh to see the Sesnick family, but Mrs. Sesnick closed the door in his face. Marilyn, I'm not sure we even knew about her. She was very young, so we never got to talk to her. Mm -hmm. I wish we had known about the necklace picture of that published. Might have brought a call about its origin, but that's, that never happened. That's about how I got into it. You've mentioned a lot of people that were interviewed for the series. Yeah. What those interviews are the most memorable to you or the most remarkable to you of the ones that you named? Oh, Teresa. Teresa Lancaster. Okay. And she, because she was extremely articulate, knew exactly what happened, and she told us what happened. Jerry Coob was very interesting to talk to. He was, his situation was pretty terrible, actually, because he loved her very much. And then he became a suspect in the case, which I know that some of our journalist colleagues suggested that he killed her, but there's no way that happened. The cops, Joe, James Cannell, Bud Romer. They were digging back in their memories, just like they did in the in the documentary, The Keepers. Two very memorable interviews, of course, were Joe Maskell and Conrad Richter, the doctor. Maskell, we saw him down at his rectory down at St. Augustine in Elkridge. He's smooth, he's urbane, he's pleasant, very nice, but my God, what? That was masking, which, of course, we couldn't prove it. Dr. Victor, he let the cat out of the bag when he said that he'd allowed Maskell to be in the, in the examining room when he was doing gynecological exams on some of the girls. He was an evil old man. Um, but, let's see, was, oh, Dr. Franz, Charlie Franz, he was a very sad case. We thought that there was something a little bit strange about him when we were interviewing and it wasn't really until the whole keepers thing came up that i found out that what maskell did to him had turned him into a coke addict mm. he was arrested he and his wife were arrested for cocaine distribution he lost his dental license he had applied to get it back i don't know if he has but i hope so he was a good well, guy who was yeah. Really badly done by an evil priest. I can tell you that Charles and I have become friends because we were actually neighbors before we both moved. And he did share with me in the last year that the Maryland Licensing Board had reached out to him. Sure. So I don't know what the outcome of that is. Uh -huh. uh, well, I hope that, favorable. Yeah, that was good to hear. That's Those are some of the better ones. Did you ever talk to Sharon? Did you ever talk to Sharon May? Oh, yes. Yes, I talked to Sharon May several times. And in fact, oh, after this was all over, I actually did a feature story about Sharon May because she collects dollhouses. There's some beautiful things. But she was the Iron Lady as far as talking about this investigation. We never knew exactly what the city was doing. She stonewalled us on that. 
I know there's a lot of people who are certain she was lying, and I can't say she lied to us because she didn't tell us anything. But I know, I, I know them, they were doing it. But again, in, lurking in the background of all this was the Archdiocese, a very powerful organization with very high-powered lawyers. Out of all the people that you did interview, who do you, is there anyone that you wish you could have had the opportunity to interview or to interview longer or to get them to say more? Or now. A lot of people on that list. We were willing to talk to anybody and hope they didn't lie to us. One thing we discovered, there was a great atmosphere of fear. If you notice, the early stories don't have any names in them because nobody wanted to go on the record. And it took a while to get through to that. But one thing that was very surprising in the documentary, which they, the crew that did the documentary deserves just absolute plaudits. They did a marvelous job. I learned a lot from that documentary. And in particular, we knew nothing about these guys who came home with bloody shirts and claimed to have done something bad. I would love to get a couple of them in a room with Joe, who unfortunately is not with us any longer, and really try to put the screws to them and find out, were they BSing or did they, what did they know? The documentary danced around that a lot, but it didn't reach any conclusions. I would also like to talk, it's too late too, to talk to Sister Helen. Because when I went to her house, we had a very nice talk up to a point, but I could see she was very much afraid. She just didn't want to be dragged back into that thing after all those years. Can you remind me who Sister Helen is? Say again. Can you remind me who Sister Helen is? Oh, I think you mostly know her as Sister Russell. Okay, yes, okay. Yes. Kathy's roommate. Yeah, yeah I knew her by Russell. I didn't know her by, by that name. That's why I was like, who is this? Bob, when you went to see her, she had she was married and had a couple children. Yeah, um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what her life seemed like and her demeanor? When did she know you were coming to interview her? I No, as I recall, we were found out that letting people know we were around didn't do any good. In fact, one funny thing that I must tell you, when we found out that Jerry Koob was by then a Methodist minister and living in New Jersey, we drove up to his house. So we got out of the car, marched across the lawn. He comes to the door. And he at first thought we were there to fix the air conditioning. So you can see what we look like. <laughs> And then we told him who we were, and then he closed the door, and we finally convinced him that we were not there to do a character assassination. What had happened, according to him, was that the Baltimore County homicide detectives had been there the day before, and they mm. told him that we planned to publish Sister Catherine's letter famous letter and we had a long time trying to tell him there is no way we are going to publish that letter under any then he talked to us 
He was not as expansive as he was in the documentary, but he did talk to us and told us about her and what a wonderful lady she was. Did he show you the letter? I have the letter. You have the original or a copy of it? I hand copied it in the morgue. Okay. So you saw it in the morgue files and sat and rewrote it yourself. And, and copied it, yes. Was it handwritten or typed it when you saw it? In, it was letter. handwritten. That's what he told me. There was some question about that. Yeah. He said, no, it was handwritten. Do you remember the date on it by any I'm chance? Gonna, hold on just a second. Yeah, I've got it right here. I thought, and poor poor Jessica, she heard us. Poor Jessica kept saying, you sure you don't have any of the clippings or anything left? I said, no, those things went out the door years ago. And about two weeks ago, I happened to be digging under the eaves, and there was a box. And I pulled the box out, and it happened to be full of cut-out pages of my stories from the 90s. And guess what was all in there? All the clipboard and the letter. And it's dated November 3rd, 1230 a.m. Now, does it have a year on it? No, but it's got to be 1969. Okay. Jerry shared with me that he received that letter from Kathy at the end of his year working at TIO, which would have been 1966. So that's interesting. He shared that with me on the phone not too long ago, that it was not the week before she disappeared. So that would have actually, November 3rd would have been three days. Before yeah, Kathy before she... disappeared. Yeah. Okay. And let me see if there's anything else that might. That sounds right. Let's see. Oh, dear. Oh, I've just got, it's got a, I've got a dis. See, unfortunately, this is the day before, days before cell phones, cameras where I could have photographed all this stuff. Sure. And this oh, is where yeah, I got right. a whole ton of addresses, Fleming Moore. Carl Michael Berkheimer, George Eugene Brown. I don't know who these people are. I don't think I ever got to <laughs> And it's got, I've got a pretty complete description of her appearance there. Yeah. I'm sorry. What do you mean a description of her appearance? Of what they, of what they found when they saw her body partially snow-covered. Were you there at the... Were you there uh, that day? What? Were you there at the crime scene that day? No, this is from the file in the morgue. It's a very complete file. Were you there when they found Kathy? I was in Brazil. Oh, okay. When she no, this is all from the record. Okay. But when she was found, were you still out of the country? I was out for three more years. Okay. Why were you in Brazil? I was there. I was chief of the Sons, the Rio Bureau. Oh. Wow. Well, there you go. Do you speak Spanish? Okay. <laughs> so where were we and who were, who was that busy lie slandering? <laughs> I You're just, talking about Jerry, but that's interesting about the letter. Yeah. Gemma, have you, have you seen the entire copy of the letter? I have. No, I have. Oh, are you talking to Gemma? Yeah, I think Shane means the original one. I've seen 
the I've seen copies of it, but I have not seen the original letter. I've seen copies of the entire thing, but not the original letter, not the handwritten original letter from Kathy. But I think it's really interesting that she wrote it on November 3rd at 12.30 in the morning. So if she mailed it that day, it would have arrived to Jerry on maybe the day she disappeared. That's interesting. Where was he then, in Annapolis? He was either living, yes, he was living at Manresa. Yeah. With the letter, did he provide the envelope that the letter was mailed in? No. It was just the letter? Yeah. Yeah. It would have been postmarked. Right. He he told me that he gave a folder of items about Kathy or from Kathy to Detective Romer, and he he never saw anything after that. He told me he gave the letter to Romer and didn't receive anything back again. Okay, here's Detective Jimmy Nooner, and Romer took charge. That's a note that I have here. Who was the other officer? Nooner, Jimmy Nooner, N-U-N-E-R. I don't know that name. Do you know if he's still living? No, I don't. I don't know whether we ever talked to him because Joe knew Bud Romer. Joe. Okay, Joe Nowarski. Joe Nowarski, yes. Your partner at the Sun Papers. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Bob, what makes you think that the letter was written in 69? I don't know. Very melancholy. It's a very poignant letter. I don't know. It didn't have a it didn't have a year on it, or I would have written that. But it just logic tells me this was the last thing that she wrote. And when you were at the morgue, did it seem like that was the case? That's what the detectives believed as well? Yes. Yeah, that's what the letter was about. That's one reason why they were so hot to why they considered him a suspect. And well, it makes a lot of sense that they would have considered him such a high suspect. Yes. She sent him that letter a few days before instead of what he's saying about 66. I want, The weird thing is maybe if it was 69, maybe Jerry is miscalculating or not remembering correctly when he received the letter. I'm trying to see if I can... If there's any clue in here, I was alone Halloween night and all the next day. I had another long talk with myself about us. It was peaceful. Don't worry. It must be on you. Your time and your deed is even more, more than I have ever had before. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, if Jerry responded to this podcast, that would be wonderful. I don't know that he listens to these, but I did ask him specifically about when he received the letter and whether it was handwritten or not. He said, yes, it was handwritten. And Bob, you're corroborating that. He told me, though, he said, I hope that he's wrong about when I got that letter. I got that letter at the end of the first year I taught at TO, and he only taught there one year. Now, when and that, that was, and when would that, would it, it, it was have, the first, it, would, it, was, the, yeah, it was the first year 
It was the first year that Kia was open. Right. It would have been 65, 66. And then he must have been confused because he said he got the letter at the end of 67. Oh. So perhaps no. he's not recollecting correctly. Oh, I think he is. Yeah, I think he's off on the date. Let's see. I'm trying to see if there's... It's interesting, though, because Kathy, I knew her ways. She would never write a letter that had the date and the time and not the year. She well, was perfect. She was so meticulous about that, like a journalist would be. Let's see. But writing was her thing. And to put the to- the date and the time and not the date, that seems strange to me. Yeah, that's strange to me, too, and I didn't even know her. Wait a minute. When did they meet? When did they start together? They met They met the first year, met before okay. Keo opened at a conference. Oh, and Jerry was, right, Jerry came to Keo to each of the Jesuits was expected to spend like there a year inter- internship as a teacher. Yeah, I got it for you. Okay. Okay, I grew afraid you didn't know me as well as you once did. One of the things that caused me fear the last time you were here was that you seemed so insensitive to what was in my heart and so very much like the, quote, first Jerry I met three years ago. There it is. Wow. I tell you what it was. I've never seen that rest of that letter then. It's very interesting because... I've never heard that part of letter. It's a long letter. I've got lousy handwriting. Um, one, two, two, three, four, five, five pages of legal size, legal size paper. Are you serious? I am. Five pages. Um, legal, legal size. Yes. I'm stunned. That's what I have. So you know that I don't remember exactly how hers was, but I, it took me five legal size pages to copy it all. Bob did go on to read us the letter in its entirety, but out of respect for Sister Kathy, her family, as well as the sensitivity it may bring, as this is still a case being actively investigated. We will not be releasing it as of right now. To quickly summarize, the letter was handwritten to Jerry, and it seemed Kathy was emotional and hurt by something said or done by Jerry. She wrote it from her heart, and there it will stay. No, we know now what the date is. It's November 3rd, 1969. Yeah. He disappeared. Yes. I'm like, I don't know about Gemma, but that just blew my mind. Me too. Like, I only knew the letter to be a, just a, look, looking like a page. Me too. And then all of a sudden, Bob, you, you read that part, and we're just like, what? I don't know about Jimmy, but I almost fell on my chair. Uh-huh. Me too. I'm leaning back in my chair, and he said that when we met three years ago. I almost spit my coffee out and flipped my, flipped my computer chair. A detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. 
Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? As we deep dive into these chilling tales, we all need a moment of escape. A way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where Recess Mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens. Recess Mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar. It's not just a sparkling water. It's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of Foul Play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon. Letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com shane to get 15% off recess mood your go-to alcohol replacement. So why don't we go ahead and talk about when, so when the keepers aired and you were able to watch it for the first time, I know that earlier you mentioned some of the things that the series linked that you hadn't known about. Yeah. Was there any more that the series linked and what did the series and your previous knowledge combined lead you to think who was the person or the reasoning behind Kathy's murder. Joe and I always had a, I don't know if I made a note on this, but I, I can tell you, Joe always thought that Maskell killed her. I never did, because to me, it just wasn't his stuff. He was not going to get his hands dirty. But I am absolutely convinced that he masterminded it, And he got somebody who knew that area. Now, whether he knew who Sister Catherine was, I have no idea. But I don't know if either of you have traveled to where her body was found. Yes, I have. I have. You've got to know it's there. It's not a place where... You ride around with a dead body in your car and you say, hey, that looks like a great place to dump a body. Very out of the way. And at that time, it's all grown over now. It was actually pretty grown over when I was there in, what, 1993. So I'm sure now, if it hasn't been developed, probably heavily wooded. Because looking at the pictures, which we've all seen of the area, there was a lot of bare space. But when I was there in 93, there wasn't. And the fact of the car has been struck, stuck in my throat for all these years. Because 
whoever did it put the car, we don't know whether she was abducted as she drove home or somewhere along the way. I'm, I lean toward the theory that she might have arrived home and whoever was there was waiting for her. Actor got in the car, drove off, did whatever he was going to do, dumped her body, brought the car back and left it across the street. Why? I don't know. Unless it was to, as a signal to maybe Sister Helen, see what happens to little girls who talk. All of these are possible. But we one theory, have. yeah, one theory, Bob, is that Dilly Schmidt, who lived right across the hall from her, uh-huh. if he was involved, if he was involved, he was her neighbor and she would have known him. So if he had come up to the car when she was coming home, she wouldn't she have wouldn't been afraid have, of him. Right. She wouldn't she have wouldn't been afraid. Thought, he wouldn't well, have been a stranger. And didn't know anything he, about Billy right. or Edgar or right. any and if of he, those. If he, if he needed a way to get home, her car was it because yeah. he could park it across the street and it would take him 10 seconds to get back to his door. Sure. So that's, it's one possibility. And uh, that, one of the things that has always amazed me is that police insistence, repeated insistence, that there was no forensic evidence in that car except muddy tires, no, no fingerprints. No, nothing. So I just don't know. Kathy's autopsy. Yeah. Have you seen her autopsy? Yes. It shows that she, it tells that she was wearing a glove. So, yeah, if she had gloves on, driving Mm -hmm. gloves, that wouldn't be unusual for November. And if these guys were thugs, they probably were used to doing things without leaving a trace, they could have had gloves on as well. I think well in this case. As far Mm -hmm. as I'm concerned, and I said it in the documentary, we know two things. She disappeared. She was killed. We don't know anything else. We've been speculating for almost a half a century now. But we don't know any more than we did in 1970. Can you tell us about when you went out to Oregon? Oh, I didn't go. The police went. Tell us about that. <clears throat> one of our, one of my former colleagues on the Evening Sun told me, or told Joe and I, that his sister had been raped by a guy who lived in the North Bend Road area. And that he was out of jail and living in Oregon. He gave us a name and everything. So we gave it to the county detectives, and they went out to interview the guy. However, since all they had was a name and a former conviction, they didn't have a hammer over him. He can put you with this place at this time. He said, I don't know nothing. I didn't do nothing. And that they had to accept it. So that was you the remember? end of that. He was our best suspect. Yeah. Do you remember his name? No, I don't. Do you have it anywhere in your files? No, I see. I don't have the notes. That I know. Okay. See, I have clippings in this letter stuff, but my notebooks are 
I know those are gone. So why do you think Kathy was murdered? Because she was, had a hole in her head, among other things. But what do you think the motive was? Her purse was still there. Again, this could be endless speculation. She was, she was murdered to keep her from talking about what Jean had told her at Keogh, sex abuse by Maskell. However, there, that, that produces, of course, a question for me. If that was the case, why did he wait almost six months to have her eliminated? Why didn't he do it right after he heard about it? Because he must have heard. And the other thing is, one of the great mysteries of this, and nobody's come up with an answer to it, who did Sister Catherine tell, if anyone? Did she go to the principal of Keogh, who, according to what we were told, was a good friend of Maskell? Who did she talk to? Because Maskell remained there another, what, five years? And yes, he did. What he did in that time. Right. Yes, he so, did. We just don't know. Are you guys both surprised that Jerry says that Kathy never told him about the abuse? I'm no, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I get a feeling that she probably wanted to quietly sound out people. But you see, of course. This whole thing was interrupted by the mm-hmm. fact that she and Sister Helen left the convent and went to the apartment and to the private public school. So mm-hmm. she wasn't at Keogh anymore. And why ultimately did she leave? There's a lot of speculation about a social experiment. Or well, was that a cover for something else? Or were they well, told our family? Yes, yeah, well, now deceased. We yeah. had an awful time getting this story in the paper. It kept being delayed one week to the next for, I don't know, two months maybe. Mm-hmm. And frankly, one, one day I had a pretty much of a tantrum at a meeting with the editors. I was just so pissed off. I was ready to screw you, take the story and stick it because I don't want to do anything more with it. We found out how many editors had put their paw prints on it. The top editor said since 1969, 1970, this was a period of great social turmoil, both in the church and in the country. And we have to include some context. And you may, you'll find in there a couple of paragraphs about this social turmoil and why religious were talking about getting into the wider world ditching the habit, wearing real clothes, heading out. So that is what we took it to be from them. No no great evil plot. She and Sister Helen were two attractive young women. They were confined to that convent, to that school. And even though they had uh, pledged their lives to this, they looked around, they saw the real world and what was happening, and I think they wanted to be part of it, and so they were. Pictures of nuns playing softball always go over big, but that doesn't get them out of the convent. It's interesting because Kathy said to her family, 
they were disappointed, of course, when she left Keogh. She said to her family, it's more dangerous for me to stay at Keogh than it is for me to work in a public school now, setting. I've never heard that before. Yeah, her sister told me that. Well, um, I wish we could talk to Marilyn. Yeah. Like, there's Nick just the, shut the door on Joan. The other thing is that the summer she left, she yeah. and Russell actually spent a lot of time at conferences and visiting their families so sure. that from the time she left in June until the day she disappeared in November, there wasn't that much time for her to be living in that apartment. People think it's informed and having lots of parties, and there wasn't really that much time that they were living there. Oh, the public started in September. Yeah. Oh, so, they... you know, a couple mm-hmm. more was living there, and I'm sure months. they were social, yeah. And but I nobody that I know of, unless the cops have it somewhere, has come forward to say Sister Catherine went to so and told her this or mm-hmm. anything like it because Maskell stayed there. Right. They did anything to him. In fact, I had two sets of neighbors, both of whom were teachers at Keogh. And one was named Ball, and the other, oh, sure, they moved away. I think their name was Cruz. They were for, he was from Cuba. And we had the Alice Deloria. Did you ever know her? Her mother. I'm sorry. You, you her mother her. was school secretary. And Alice went there as a teacher, young mm-hmm. teacher. And she said her mother warned her, stay away from Maskell. What was the last name? Let's see. I think I may have emailed this to you and Abby. Her name I'll is Laura now, but I don't okay. know what it was then. And you said they were whose neighbors? Who neighbors? Yeah, I had two sets of neighbors. The parents of my next door neighbor met as teachers at EO. I think they. Oh, I remember. Yeah, I remember Mr. Ball. His son and daughter in law lived next to me. And then in the next block was, oh, she's Mary Jane and Diego. Diego and Mary Jane. I can't remember their last name. You have a good memory, though, Bob. Jeez. They were, they lived in the, in fact, they introduced Mr. and Mrs. Ball, who both okay. came as young teachers. But I think they came. Now, I don't know. Diego and Mary Jane may have been there, but I think Mr. and Mrs. Ball came at the end of this, maybe in the beginning of 1970. Who's got the next oh, question? <laughs> well, you've, you're answering a lot of them, but I'm wondering if you want to talk about whether or not you think what's happening. First of all, we're hoping and we believe that a lot of the women who are coming forward to the attorney general are doing it because they got courage from the women and the keepers. We're, yeah, we're interested in your perspective on what's happening, both in Pennsylvania and what you predict is going to happen here. And if you think there's a possibility of learning who killed Kathy because of it. It's possible with the new D- DNA technology. I don't right. know what got to play with. Now that Gary Childs is retired, I don't know what the police department are doing. We're getting close on to 50 years now, and nobody yeah. has been unconfessed. No, we don't have a confession. 
Wish we did. I remember um, I did one story at the time. You probably have seen it in the file. With Sam Bowerman, Lieutenant Bowerman was the behavioral science expert for the Baltimore County Police. He did a profile on the killer as he saw it. And he said that sooner or later, he's going to weigh down under the guilt of it. And he's going to tell somebody. Maybe those two guys with the bloody shirts told somebody and they didn't tell anybody else. But they... And one, so, one of them committed suicide, and the other one is not well. But was that, was you remember him in the movie, Edgar? Yeah. And, um, yeah. Abby told me that he really was Buster Badass when he was young. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he, he was quite the cruiser. Anyhow, he didn't confess. And so it's, it is as it was. However, I have discovered the joys of polemic since I got on Facebook with this thing. As you the joys know. of what? The joys I, of what? The joys of polemic. Calling bad guys names. When I was a reporter, I had to go play by the mm-hmm. rules of objectivity. And, uh, of course, my editors would have made it happen even if I hadn't. But. Now, I can say a lot of the things that I really wanted to say then. Go ahead. No, it's... How about it? I'm just... <clears throat> right now, I'm, I'm an old man. And I'm just a retired reporter who got caught up in an incredible story, which, in part, the murder may never be solved. And in another part, the sexual terrorism by the priest and bishop may be on the road to overdue exposure. What comes out of this to me is something worldwide and tragically much larger than Sister Catherine's death. I just hope she did not die in vain. But it's, let me see, I, I made a couple notes here. It just You ask me what? was my perspective on the Pennsylvania report and its impact on Maryland. First, I can't say enough good things about the Pennsylvania Attorney General. Other jurisdictions have done investigations of priestly sexual terrorism, particularly Boston. They got a great movie and a Pulitzer Prize out of it. But Shapiro, he took a big chunk out of a huge state, and he produced a horror story. It made me sick to even start reading that report. It just, but it showed very clearly the extent and the depth of the depravity of those priests and the the determination of the bishops to cover it all up. And of course, it was all done in the name of protecting the church as an institution. You know, the Catholic Church has done this worldwide. So it truly is a universal church, universal in its perversion, and it will continue to cover up wherever it can. So as far as I'm concerned, one thing that Pennsylvania fairly has gotten pretty well started on is a repeal of the statute of limitations on child sex abuse cases. Too many of these bishops and priests have just escaped prosecution because of it. So. I don't know how 
far, Attorney General Frosch plans to go with this investigation, but he needs to put on record, as Pennsylvania did, the history of abuse so the people of Maryland can understand the corruption that has festered within the Archdiocese of Baltimore for decades. Pennsylvania, our Shapiro went back 70 years. So I'm sure that if Frosch sets his mind to it, he can do the same thing. And I understood from Lori's letter that the Archdiocese is going to cooperate voluntarily in this investigation based on their past history and my dealings with the Archdiocese of Baltimore. I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw the Basilica. I wouldn't trust them to volunteer all the records from as far back as possible. I firmly believe that subpoenas are the best way to get them if they haven't already been shredded. As far as what will happen in Maryland with the church, my cynical evil twin, the cynic, who is right nine times out of ten, says probably not a lot. Baltimore is at heart a Catholic city, and the archdiocese remains a major power in it. So I would like to see its power degraded to be just another religious sect among many sects here in Baltimore, and not the political power it has been in Maryland and around the world for centuries. There's no reason why the Pope should be treated like a king or an emperor, although in fact that is what he is. I've wondered for many years how could anyone respect an institution that has tolerated and condone such incredible evil as the Catholic Church has done, and then covered it up as a matter of policy. Given what we know about how the sexual terrorism continued to perpetrators were promoted to ever higher offices, given them more opportunities to conceal their actions, who could look at any man wearing a Roman collar and not wonder, is he one of them? Is he a child molester? The priesthood is a closed fraternity, and I am absolutely convinced they all knew what was going on. But for decades, nobody ever talked. It was kept very quiet. And priests might complain to bishops, but that's an exercise in futility because they were concealing it. Again, in the name of God and to protect the church as an institution. And personally, this is a greater sin even than the abuse by the priests. And I would be delighted to see a large number of bishops in orange jumpsuits because they allow these terrorists and their dog collars to just destroy untold thousands of lives around the world with their, I call it, godless hypocrisy. The Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, I don't know if either of you read it, but it was just beyond shocking. It was sickening. And it just showed a level of depravity and sadism and cruelty and absolute mm-hmm. art of anything but their own gratification. It to me was just unimaginable. A hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church, from the parish priest to the top ranks of the Vatican, has just given a whole new sinister definition of the words hypocrisy and immorality. On one hand, they prance about in their rich vestments, they waft incense, chant prayers, they preach the word of God, the adoration of the Virgin Mary. I wonder what she thinks of it all. They set strict rules and regulations for the poor. 
the deluded faithful who are too devout, too ignorant to realize that it's all just ecclesiastical theater. They're the extras in the church production. They provide the finances for the excesses of the priests and the bishops. They proclaim their own goodness as the voice of God, and they demand strict morality from their congregations. But then these priests think nothing of buggering altar boys in the sacristy or raping teenage girls at a parochial high school. But of course, it's all in the name of God. You know how that is. We have monsignors, bishops, cardinals, even popes who knew. They have to be blind, deaf, or dead not to know what was going on. So what do they do about it? They transfer priests from one parish to another, arm them out as military and VA chaplains. You find other ways to just ignore what's happening and look the other way. Cardinal McCarrick is currently a prime example. Cardinal Law was another. God knows how many more fit that mold. The Roman Catholic Church has ruled with fear, guilt, and strict discipline for, secretary, uh, for centuries. And in my opinion, the universal church is so corrupt universally that it owes the entire world an abject, abject apology because this rampant sexual deviance has been reported every continent and many countries on each. So what has the church done to drain its swamp? Very little that anybody knows about because it's a cult of secrecy. But things have finally gone too far, and now that boil has been lanced, and the pus that is the Catholic hierarchy is being exposed. But it will take the official government action to bring this evil to light. I hope Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch brings the hammer of God down on the Archdiocese of Baltimore. As Jean said, F-T-B. End of speech. Bob, I think that you're a brilliant person to listen to. I have a quick question for you. Have you yeah. ever been a Catholic? Christ, no. I was married. <laughs> I'm not being a, I can explain a few things. I was raised as a Methodist. I bailed on them when I was about 11. I married a Roman, an Italian Catholic from a brainwashed family. And uh, when I wrote, um, I sent to my daughter the first of my rants on this. She wrote back, she said, you sound like you had the Catholic Church shoved down your throat. And I wrote back and said, yes, I did. <clears throat> because if I hadn't gone to their premarital instruction and agreed to have my children baptized as Catholic, your mother wouldn't have married. Mm -hmm. That's out. Anyhow, the outcome of this was that she finally caught wise to them and stopped going. My eldest daughter is a raging atheist. My youngest have anything to do with them. So they lost everybody with all their nonsense. Mm -hmm. And my partner, Carolyn, she was married to a Roman Catholic man from a very staunch Catholic family. And he, too, finally caught wise and said, hey, I've had enough of this nonsense. And so he lost one there, too. But I, no, I find organized religion is probably the devil's greatest creation. He should be very proud of it. Because think of the evil that has been done in the name of God. For centuries and centuries, 
all in the name of God. I agree that someone once told me this when I was in college, and I never realized it until then, but they told me that there have been more people murdered in the name of their God than any other reason oh, I believe for the that. history of humans. So I, I think believe that's, it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy thing, but I'm glad to hear that you've never been a Catholic because I think that you're the first person I've spoken to with Gemma who's never been a Catholic or raised a Catholic. And I've never been raised, have no knowledge of how the Catholic Church works. Thankfully, except now, I, yeah, until now, I, I was. Yeah, exactly, uh, I've always exactly. Catholic Church an interesting historical phenomenon. So I've read a lot about it and about the papacy and the Vatican. That plus observing this, I was indifferent to the whole thing after I got married. Screw them! I'm not going anywhere. But after we got involved with the Maskell case. And Sesnik murder, because Joe and I actually spent most of our time trying to solve the murder because lawyers had already undertaken the abuse cases. They were working on those. So we got, we did what we could with those. But, and then tangling with the archdiocese, did, Gemma, did I send you the letter I found from Bill Blau? I've tried Uh, to talk to him, and I said, what do you want to say? We'll put you in the movie, and I didn't get a response. So, anyway, yeah. Unresponse is is part of his thing. Um, No response, yeah. And then Sean took over from him, right? Yeah, I guess. I don't know anything about her who lies for the archdiocese. I don't know how how they can look at their children. I don't know how they can look at their children. I don't know. know. Uh, can I ask you a question, a different question? Sure. Where did you study journalism? That's a good question. I, when I was in high school, I worked on the high school paper. And in the senior graduation, they always have this prediction for the class. And my prediction was that I was going to become a foreign correspondent for the New York Times. And that was always enjoyed later. They got the job. They just got the paper wrong. <laughs> And Ernest Hemingway told me that when he said, you will have one hell of a lot of fun, but you will never get rich. Wait. He was right on both both points. Hemingway told you that? Yes, ma'am. Wait, you knew Hemingway? Did. Met him in Venice. Get out of here. I'll send you a picture. I'll send you this. All right. I'll send you the story I did on his 100th anniversary. Okay. Did you actually go to college and study journalism? I went to Hopkins, which okay. did not have a journalism major per se. But mm-hmm. while I was there, there was an experimental, an educational experiment. Dr. Detlef Bronk was the president of Hopkins at the time. And what he did was create a school of writing, speech, and drama. And within it, they had these various writing courses, which is what I taught. But it wasn't a journalism degree, as, as they have now. If you go to the University of Maryland, you get a journalism degree. Do mm-hmm. they call it mass communications, something like that? But uh, anyhow, I never worked on the newsletter at Hopkins. 
Now, but when I came out of the Navy, I was, the Sun at that time would hire young reporters who had no experience and grow their own reporters. I don't think they can afford to do that anymore. No. Did you work with Tom Nugent at the Sun Papers? Were you there at the same time? We were there at the same time, but he worked over in the feature section. He was married to a girl named Kathy Lally, who has a divorced, and she's since married a fellow named Will England, and won a mm-hmm. Pulitzer Prize. So what department were you in? You were news. He was Morning favorite. news. Morning okay. news. You should write your memoirs. Oh, I got no memoirs to write. I didn't well, gosh, you, I don't know, Shane. What do you think? I would love to read your memoir. <laughs> Me too. I just like, Bob, you know what? I love listening to your voice. It's like you you have such a good voice for narrating. I wish you would do books on tape and I would buy all the books. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'm serious. You have a great voice for narrating. Don't you think so, Shane? Yeah. It's like a really good voice. Wait a minute, there was something funny I wanted to tell you that, oh, hell, my senile brain doesn't always pick up on things anymore. No, I don't. That's okay. Now, are we at the end of this good stuff? There's a couple more questions that I wanted to bring up really quick. Uh, Go ahead. Bob, first off, I think you're my new favorite person, shortly behind Gemma. Just oh, because my you- God. <laughs> I think the same thing, Bob. You know, right. I love you. I love Bob. I love Bob. I just love how honest you are, and you're very well-spoken, and I think that's something that... Articulate. (laughs) Wasn't that what Barack Obama was? Yes. But that's also why I love Gemma, too. But I know that both of you have seen the autopsy report for Sister Kathy. Is it fair to say that there was no evidence, or at least in the autopsy that you guys were privy to, of sexual assault? No, there. Wait a minute. Hold on. I got it right here. See, I'm glad I didn't throw all this stuff away. Oh, here's where they tried to subpoena me for the Doro trial. They wanted the tape of my interview with Conrad Richter. Mm. Asshole, he was. Who was he? Huh? Richter. Christian Richter. The GYN. Oh, it's the doctor. Yeah. Wait a minute. Here we go. Let me see. I have the. Topsy report here. I think it was inconclusive, wasn't it? Because of uh, the, let me see. Because there was so much yeah, decomposition from animals. Yes, there was. It was. Yeah. It was pretty gruesome. The kidneys are normal size, no kidney stones, renal pelvis, urinary bladder, and ureters are without special note. The mutilation of the uterus and the adnexa postmortem by animals. Has been described above the lower portion of the uterus as well as the cervix and the vagina disclose no evidence of anti mortem injury. The lower portion of the vagina is mutilated post mortem by animals. No, there isn't, but somewhere I read that there was. Here we go. Here it is. I knew it was in here somewhere. This is Dr. Spitz. This 26-year-old white female, Catherine A. Sesnick, died of craniocerebral and neck injury sustained as a result of blunt force impact. In consideration of climatic conditions during the time since the deceased was first reported missing, 
it is considered that postmortem changes observed at the time of autopsy are compatible with a two-month postmortem interval. The liver alcohol content at the time of autopsy was negative, suggesting that the deceased had not been consuming alcoholic beverages prior to her death. The internal genital organs had been mutilated postmortem by animals, and there was no evidence of antemortem injury to the vagina or the lower part of the uterus. However, the dis- disarray of the clothing of the deceased suggests a sexual background to this killing. So he's kind of, it's possible, but not, he can't say it definitely. No. Circumstantial. Yes. Okay. Now, many a man has taken a long walk on a short rope due to circumstances. So what did you say? I said many a man has taken a long walk on a short rope because mm. of circumstances. So there's, that's, that's that. Now, you had another question, Shane. Yeah, earlier, Jim had made mention, and we were kind of talking about how it's possible that, that whoever left the car could have been wearing gloves. Yeah. Because, of course, we are under the assumption that there were no fingerprints left. Yeah. Why? I mean, and you've been a reporter for a long time. In the last recording that Gemma and I did, we briefly spoke about this. But, of course, we know that in the car, although there were no fingerprints, there was the weed. That was left on the famous twig. Yeah, in the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do you find that to be extremely weird that yes. they are going through the process of ensuring that their fingerprints aren't being left left on the steering wheel? I have no explanation for it. Weird, yes, but I have no explanation for it. I'm for some reason, that just it. I don't know why, but that. It, and I know that Gemma has dealt with this for a long time, but I cannot get past this. I, I can't get past it, that they're so careful not to leave fingerprints, but that's left. To me, that would point to this is more of a message of some kind. It, this, probably, this it very well could, but I have no idea who the message would have been directed to because nobody has a clue what it meant. If right. any, everything was symbolic to Kathy. If she left that there, I don't know how she did it, but if she did, it was probably to let whoever found the car know that this was typical of the area where she was taken because it was a long, it was a long piece of dried grass. Okay. The other thing is that it was not a twig. It was grass. It was a long piece of grass. Like you'd almost find at the beach, like seagrass. Uh-huh. I think whoever abducted her pushed her over Probably. from the driver's side to the passenger side, and she Which knocked leads. the trash over. Yeah. Which leads it, to the theory that she arrived home and was ambushed. And it's possible it could. I think it was three men. I don't think it was two or one. I think it was three, but that's my theory. And no idea. I don't know any. I don't know anything more than the rest of you, but... If somebody else left it, to me, it's almost like an insult saying, yeah, here's where we left her. See if you can find her. Like uh, like showing off. Out of everyone who is still alive, 
You know who the person that I would love to be able to talk to? Who's that? That is Father Maskell's sister. I got a funny story about that. But go Maureen. Ahead, a woman was in a hair parlor. And she and the stylist were going on and on about the keepers and Father Maskell and, you know, what a demon he was, blah, blah, blah. The woman in the next chair was sitting there very quietly, taking all this in, not saying anything, not looking real happy. So anyhow, the woman got up and left. After she was finished, she finished first, then she left. And apparently the store manager came over and said to the other woman and the stylist, do you know who that was? No, that was Father Maskell's sister. Wow. So I don't know where that happened, but it was maybe six months ago. So, Gemma, now we're going to continue the question and answering again for all the listeners out there. If you're listening to the series and you have a question or you feel like we should revisit something or dive deeper into something, definitely, definitely let us know. You can do so on the Facebook page on both ours, the podcast and the keepers, because we do post the episodes there. You can also email myself at shane at shadowspod.com. And we're going to continue with this just that we make sure that we try to keep the discussion open and answer the questions that people are coming up with. Let's go ahead and jump in. The very first question is, could the FBI be forced to release its Maleki files? How can it be legal to just keep putting people off when it's supposed to be public information? And of course, now it's been more than a year after the Keepers aired and the Keepers had been filmed. Was it two years prior before it was released? Three. Three Three years. So, of course, when the Keepers aired, it had already been a long time before you had gotten to be able to get anything back for those files. Correct. So, to today, it's almost October in 2018. Have you guys Mm -hmm. gotten the Malecki files? No. The FOIA request was submitted four years ago, October of 2014. And Abby was responsible for doing the paperwork. And since then, she has kept checking on the status. And the status continues to be that it's, quote, awaiting an analyst. What that means is that somebody in the FBI has to sit down with the files and redact anything that is not public information. Now, the Malecki file is 4,000 pages. So it's huge. And because the Obama administration came under scrutiny for such a long turnaround time on getting the files out, it's easier for them to get 10 little files out than that one huge one. Although, And so it would still be counted as one file. So it keeps getting pushed back. They are past their legal limits. So in other words, In order for us to force the FBI to give us the files, we would have to file suit against the government. And that would take as long or longer and be very expensive than just waiting for the files to be released. Right now, it's our understanding that the FBI has 
taken a brand new look at the Malecki case, is reinvestigating the situation, doing interviews over again. And so it's probably going to be longer. Abby said the outside limit they gave her was that it would be the spring of 2019, which is about not quite a year from now. So we're still waiting, but for us to try and force the issue is not going to be effective. And if we ask for smaller pieces of the file, they would just keep pushing back. It still counts as asking for the whole thing. It has to be redacted by an FBI agent. Isn't it? How odd is it that it is so long? Do you think that's weird? We have nothing to compare it to, but the size of it. 4,000 pages, that's huge. Of course, I made a bad joke and said that Abby and I could probably, even if they redact it, we could probably put in all the names of places in 10 minutes. Sure. There's not a whole lot that we haven't been able to determine, but the family feels like the FBI is working with them. They've been to see the family, and the Maleckis feel more relieved that more is being done than they assumed was being done. Maybe, I don't know how you feel about this, but I wonder if anyone in the Malecki family would like to talk to us on the podcast to talk about what's been done since the Keepers aired and what they thought of the series. I would be happy to ask them to do that. They're wonderful people. I have a feeling yeah, they might say yes. Yeah. No, I'll get yeah, in touch this week. I think the uh, cool thing about the Keepers series is it touched on huge things such as Sister Kathy's murder and the abuse mm-hmm. and the cover-up. But of course, the Malecki murder was also included as, in my opinion, a major part of the series. Well, I think that listeners and people who watch the series would love to hear from the family and right. want to know what their thoughts of the series was and where her case is now and what they believe. Mm-hmm. I agree. Because, yeah. I think the episodes we're doing right now, Shane, that people are really appreciative of an up-close-and-personal interview with some of the people that they don't know as much about or that they only met in the Keepers and have not been in the media. So I will make that, I will reach out to them this week and see how they feel about it. Yeah, and a cool thing that, you know, one of the things that we've learned about talking to people so far is there was three cuts that they did have to do when they produced the series for the keepers. And of yeah. course, that's that, that's common with any production. But now it's an awesome experience for myself to be able to speak to these people and let them speak their story and speak it, whatever they want to say. We are giving them that platform. That that's that, That's a cool thing from my experience. And I hope that all the people that listen enjoy that. And right. if there's someone that, that that's listening if they feel like i'd love to hear more from this person that was in the series or touched on slightly or stuff like that's something they should reach out to us for as well because of course especially for you Gemma, although the the keepers aired more than a year ago this is still something that's always fresh in your mind and something that you're still diving more into and and it's an ongoing investigation on your part of sure yep so, and I'm, get, I'm getting to know some of the people much better just with the episodes we're doing now together. So this has been wonderful for me because I wasn't there when they were 
being filmed, and some of them never right. were filmed. Now, I think it's a good, fresh look at information that needed more digging. Yeah, every, I think with every episode, I get more excited and more mm-hmm. excited is the word, the word that I should use, but I'm more determined to speak to someone else. Sure. Because I, I think that each time I, I, know. I relearn something that I just missed until that point. So, so the next question is, was Kathy found with anything like the rug that was described by Billy's nephew? No, she was not. There was no rug. There was no blanket on her. She was found with her slip. A full slip pulled down from the top and up from the bottom, a dark skirt, and a blue raincoat was thrown over her body after somebody placed her on the ground. Her purse was nearby, her shoes were nearby, and she was wearing one glove on her left hand. For the raincoat that was on her, and I don't know if you could answer this question, but was it just tossed on her or was it laid like flat open? Do you know what I mean? Was it covering her or was it just thrown? Yes, it was covering her. So the back of it would have been facing up. I did talk to a detective who said sometimes when someone is ashamed of what they've done, they put something over a body to hide what they've done so that psychologically it's covering up the evidence that makes them look guilty. You know what, but you know what I just thought of, what connection I just made and this, I don't, it just clicked for me just from talking to people that we have been for the podcast that was placed over her. Who else have we talked to in this series where after someone was murdered, something was placed over them that didn't involve how they were, how they were murdered. Remember oh. when we were talking, Sharon, remember when she was talking about her grandmother that was murdered, her great-grandma? They over top of her, it was a pillow, but the pillow mm-hmm. wasn't used to kill her. It was placed mm-hmm. on her post-mortem. Same idea. Same idea. Isn't that odd? Is that typical, Shane, of somebody who is trying to deny that they murdered someone or that they don't and- look at what they've done? In my opinion, that would suggest that this isn't someone who didn't know her. Okay. Because if someone just picked her up with the thought of robbing her or mm-hmm. sexually assaulting her, and they didn't know who she was or they didn't have any connection to her, they probably right. would have done their crime and left her. They might have thrown, if she had her coat, they might have thrown the coat out. But I don't see them throwing it. Maybe they would have thrown it on her, but they surely wouldn't have covered her up. Like that makes me, that points, in my opinion, that points to someone who knew and maybe was either ashamed or was sorry that they were looking at the theory that someone hired someone or had someone else do this. Of course, I'm referring mm-hmm. to Maskell having someone do this. Correct. To me, it almost seems like this could have been Shannon's uncle who did this for Maskell, but maybe he didn't want to do it or he was ashamed to have done it. And wasn't her 
grandmother strangled as well. They never released how she okay. was killed officially. However, from our knowledge, we do not believe that what, whatever was laid on her was the result of how she died. Yeah, and I'm assuming that Kathy was wearing that raincoat when she went out. When she went out that night, I don't know that it was raining, but a raincoat doesn't, it was a blue raincoat. So it wasn't like just, wasn't a slicker. And if she was wearing it, then somehow someone took it off of her or made her take it off. Because as I said, her slit was pulled down and her skirt was pulled up and then the raincoat was placed over top of her. It wasn't like it came from someplace else. It was hers. I wonder, I mean, it could have been in her car, but would, it, it, of course it was cold outside. Was the raincoat mm-hmm. something that was sufficient enough to keep her warm? I don't know. It was beginning of November and I can look up those degrees. I did it from the Moggit investigation, so I can look and see what the temperature was like. Yeah, around the time that she disappeared. But like mm-hmm. I said, if someone's going to kill her, I don't see them just placing it over her. There's a mm-hmm. difference between throwing it or tossing mm-hmm. it on her, but to, to get lay it over her is something that we did talk about in the Redhead series was sometimes people who kill, oftentimes they have a similar, something similar that they, that they do each time they do it. This is something that is similar. Mm-hmm. We'll call it a signature. The killer or has Billy. a signature. Right. Or yes, Billy. yes. 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 Right. I know uh, you're getting all excited. I can tell. Yeah, just because I never made that connection until uh-huh. we talked to yep. her and yep. talked about that uh-huh. murder. Okay. And that's something that's super interesting. So that was a very good question. Yeah. Next, we have, I have questions about Billy's nephew's taped interview about his childhood memory. How could it, how could it have happened in Kathy's apartment? Russell was there and it couldn't have been daylight still that time of year. And whose rug was used, Russell would have noticed a rug missing unless it was the next day. Okay. We don't know what happened, except that we do know that the apartment was not a crime scene. Okay. There was no blood, nothing found in the apartment that would have indicated that any foul play happened there. Now, Brian who was Sharon's younger brother, was very young when this happened, like maybe five or six years old. And he is deceased. His tape is in the keepers, and you can hear him talking. And we don't know how his story gels with any other story. I am going to speculate, because I came up with an idea of how it could actually fit, that if... After Kathy disappeared, if Billy and Edgar and or Skippy were involved, it's possible that Billy and Skippy may have had a key to the nun's apartment because they were neighbors. My neighbors have my key. And after the police were gone and everything settled down, after Jean saw Kathy, which was a couple weeks after she disappeared, It's possible that one day, this would have put it into daytime, the men went and got a blanket from the nun's apartment. I don't think they took a rug because a rug would 
it would be noticeable if it was missing. But it's possible that they took a blanket out of a closet, and by doing that, it would not have had their threads or crumbs or anything from their shoes if they took it out of their apartment. I'm talking about Billy and Skippy's apartment. So let's say this did happen. It's possible they took a blanket from the nun's apartment and put it in the back of the car and then used it to move Kathy's body. I always felt that Maskell may have panicked after he took Gene to see Kathy's body because Gene could have brought someone back there and that would have been it for Maskell. So I do think Kathy was moved probably shortly after Jean was taken there, which was in November. And it is possible that Maskell could have had those men move her wrapped up in a blanket from her own apartment. The blanket was not found, to my knowledge, on the scene. Now, the police may have a blanket. We don't know everything they know. They don't tell us much, but that's my theory. If it happened, I think it happened after she was already gone. I think you answered that fully. Good job, Gemma. That's my theory. But yeah. we don't know because Brian Brian was very young and now right. he's gone. Yeah. So the next question is, who is still alive? that Edgar could be afraid of. He was obviously lying and knows something about Kathy's death, but to me, he looks terrified. Maybe Brother Bob is still alive and has threatened him? That's possible. Who else could it be? Let's both talk about this one. I guess police. I think that also you have to consider the position that Edgar would be in if he was involved and was a part of her murder and cover-up and this abuse. Think that. For someone, theoretically, let's say he was involved and he did have a part in her killing and cover-up and all of this. I don't see someone that would be put in that position for them to come out and openly say, yep, this happened. I'm a monster. Maybe he'd have a deathbed confession and he that's possible, but... I think to confess at this stage, I don't see it happening. But also keep in mind that if he was threatened for all that period of time, and maybe he was involved because he was scared and all of this, he would be threatened by the Catholic Church of Baltimore, who still today has a huge amount of influence and power over the city. So I think... Yeah, I think for him, if he was bullied in that sense, was so fearful that he would do this crime and keep up with his cover-up for all these years, I think that he would mm-hmm. still be afraid. When you look yeah. at someone who has been abused mm-hmm. and stuff, like, I don't see him ever getting over that fear. In a way, Brother Bob could still be alive, and maybe Edgar is still afraid of him. But also, the very entity that could have been threatening him was the Catholic Church of Baltimore, and they are still active, and they are still alive, and they are still very much in power over Baltimore. Right. So I don't right. think that he would have break that. Yeah. He would break that. The other thing is that Edgar has not been. He had a stroke at some point, and he's been in and out of the hospital a lot. Just recently, I believe. And if he were arrested now for anything. 
he would have to have medical treatment in like a jail hospital. So I think he is trying to live out his life free. And it's hard to say. It could be what you're saying, that it, there are people that, that are still alive that could potentially hurt him. And when you get to be older and maybe he's not all there, he, he could be like imagining things that may not be completely accurate. Yeah, I think there's a, there's lots of reasons why he still mm-hmm. be withholding right. information. And so you know, next, Scannell, yeah, Scannell just died two years ago, so he could have been a threat, Edgar. When you have, like I said, when you have someone who is involved with the Catholic Church and the police, mm-hmm. Baltimore, like that would that'd be a pretty scary thing. So the next question is, has anyone taken DNA from Billy or Edgar's family to see if it matches anything from Sister Kathy or Joyce Malecki's crime scene? I don't know the answer to that. And even if I did... It would not be up to me to share that information. That information would only come from the families because that's really none of our business. But I don't know the answer to that. I do know that Maskell was exhumed and his DNA did not match a cigarette butt. I don't believe anybody's DNA matched a cigarette butt. But that really means nothing because the cigarette butt could have been thrown into the crime scene as a decoy to send everybody in the wrong direction. But that's well, really I all also, I Yeah. I think we should also add that at no point in time did any of us believe that Maskell did this on his own. From everyone that knew him and that were abused by him, that's a common theme that they all believed that he wouldn't have gotten his own hands dirty from this. So I don't think that any of us was surprised when his DNA wasn't a match mm-hmm. to that specific type of DNA that was taken. And of course, from Joyce's standpoint, we don't know much about the evidence that they have in her case. Is that correct? Her family has said that most of the evidence is gone, that it gets to a certain point when it is, I don't know if it's destroyed or what happened to it, but they're they're dismayed because apparently her clothing and everything is no longer available. That's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. Yeah. All right. So the next question is Maskell had a brother that was a policeman. Other than seeing a picture of him in the documentary, was he ever interviewed? Do you know if he's still living? He's not living. He died several years ago. His name was Tommy Maskell. It was actually Maskell's half brother. I believe they had the same father, different mothers. Tommy was a high ranking officer in the northeast part of Baltimore City. And although it doesn't appear that they got along real well, there is some indication that his brother Tommy may have been part of the network of police officers, politicians, business people, clergy, that were involved in the abuse and prostitution of girls. Of course, we like you mentioned, we know that brother has passed away. Correct. He, Correct. he only has a sister that's still living, right? Yes, he has a sister who's living, and she has chosen to say no to any invitations to interview or to be involved in the documentary, and so we have to respect her privacy as well. 
and she still claims that her brother was innocent. I hate to defend her, of course, because I've never spoken to her. I've never had any interaction with her. But I think that from a family standpoint, wouldn't you almost prefer your brother not to be this monster? So maybe in her mind, if she's not exposing herself to this information, Mm -hmm. she can keep that memory of him. Of course, we would love to be able to talk to her. But like you said. Yeah, I think she's very private. And she still lives in Baltimore, but she has not been willing to share any information or, like I said, be interviewed. All right. So our last question for this episode is, has Dean recovered any more memories? And how has she been coping since the release of the documentary? I can answer the second question. I keep in touch with Jean on a fairly regular basis by email or occasional phone calls. She is working on her recovery, which is something we all should do, recovering from whatever is tough in our lives. She is working again. She is a Reiki therapist and a life coach, and she's been active in that again. She's very cautious about accepting invitations to do public speaking. Those are, she analyzes the situation very carefully and makes her decision based on that. I do not know what she has remembered, if she has recovered memories in the last year, because that would be something that would be important for her to share with the police and with her therapist and her family, not with the public, because this is still a very active cold case. It's really important that Jean's privacy is respected because Anything that she would remember could be critical in solving the case. So I do not know the answer to that.